0: Hebrews chapter eleven is where we'll start tonight, and uh, we've been walking through this thing called the pursuit. We've been walking through some of the major themes of the Old Testament. We've talked about um, we well we kind of started in Genesis with a whole another series called Origins, but we've talked about creation. We've talked about a guy named Abraham. We talked about a guy named Noah. We talked about a guy named Moses, and really the major theme that we've kind of seen going through all of this is this, and um, it's hopefully yeah going to be on the screen um, is that. Through all of this, through all of these stories, they're not just stories so we can get better life principles. We've got way too much like taking the Bible and making it about me. It's not that. It's not so I can get cool life principles out of Moses' story, Abraham's story. Here's the reason that, that God lays all of this out in the Old Testament is He's showing us that He's in this massive pursuit to restore that which was lost in Eden, and it's His glory. It's His glory. And the thing that we've seen all throughout, the thing that I'm reminded of, and Chris Diarman talked about this when he was here, is that God's pursuit of us, God's pursuit of you, God's pursuit of mankind is stronger and bigger and better than, God's, than man's rejection of God. God's pursuit of you is stronger than man's rejection of God. It's stronger than your rejection of Him. So God's pursuit trumps everything. It trumps everything. And so we've seen as we've kind of pieced these stories along the faithfulness of God. And and we come to the book of Hebrews, and it's an amazing book. If we, we probably will at some point walk through all of Hebrews. But Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were Jewish Christians and they were struggling. They were struggling financially. They were struggling because they had left Judaism and they were being persecuted for their new faith in Christ. And so they're being beaten. Some of them have died because of their faith in Jesus. Some of them, they're financially strained. Some of them have lost their jobs because they've been fired, because they trusted Jesus. So this is a group of people who are being really pressed now. They're being really pressed. And the writer of Hebrews, we don't really know who the writer of Hebrews is. A lot of people think Paul wrote Hebrews because it looks a lot like Paul's literature throughout Romans and throughout Ephesians. But we don't know for sure. But we know that whoever wrote Hebrews was writing to these people who were really struggling. And here's what they were struggling with. Is following Jesus still worth it? Is following Jesus still worth it? There may be days where you get up and you ask that question. You wouldn't ever admit that to anybody, but I'll just admit it to you right now. There are days where I get up and I go, is following Jesus still worth it? Is it still worth it to follow Jesus? Especially when they were going through so much trial and so much hardship, and they looked at everyone around them that wasn't following Jesus, and they were fine. Is following Jesus still worth it? And so the writer of Hebrews builds this case. He says, Jesus is greater than Moses. He says, Jesus is greater than Abraham. He builds this case that basically what I've been saying this whole time is that Hebrew people were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for somebody who was going to save them from themselves. And they would have looked at Noah and thought, well, maybe Noah's the Messiah as they read the Torah. And then they would have looked at Abraham, and they said, well, maybe Abraham's the Messiah. He's going to have this great nation, and maybe maybe Abraham is the guy who's going to save us, but it's not Abraham. And then they would have looked at other prophets that came, and maybe this is the guy. Maybe Elijah. Maybe it's going to be Elijah that's going to save us, but it wasn't Elijah. The writer of Hebrews goes through 10 chapters, and here's what he does. He says, Jesus is greater than all those guys, and he says, Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus died for us, and he went into the Holy of Holies, and he made sacrifice for us. He took his own blood, and he poured it on the mercy seat for us. He said, Jesus is greater than all those people. Now pursue Jesus. And that's what we've been doing all this whole time. Every story has pointed to Christ. Moses points to Christ. Abraham points to Christ. Noah points to Christ. It all points to Christ. And so if you read Hebrews, he gets to chapter 11 and 12, and he's about to explode. Because he's saying, don't give up. Don't stop. This pursuit is worth it. And so God's pursuit of you is stronger than your rejection of him. And because of God's pursuit of us, It should call us and drive us to this tenacious, life-giving pursuit of God with everything that we have. When I read the Old Testament, and when I read the New Testament, and I see how God has pursued me through the prophets and through Jesus, if my response is not fully, God, I want to pursue you with everything, then I've missed something somewhere. I need to go back and read it again. But so many don't fully pursue Jesus, do we? You look around at Christians, especially in our context, And I don't know that there's an all-out pursuit for Jesus. Not what what the writer of Hebrews is about to show us. I don't see a lot of this. I just don't. I don't. Because here's what the writer of Hebrews says. In a minute, we're going to see this. It is an all-out sprint for the glory of God. Let me just begin reading here in um, chapter 11. And we'll start here in verse 1, and then we'll kind of skip down a few verses. And he builds a case through history. Here's what he says, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things that's hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. He continues on, he says in verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Then it says in verse six, without faith, it's impossible to please him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned of God by God concerning the events yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for his, the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Then he continues on. He talks about Abraham and he talks about Moses. He talks about these guys that we have Talked about, but then he kind of ends up here. And if you'll join me, in verse uh, in verse thirty-three, actually we'll skip down to verse um, thirty-five. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. People were stoned. They were sawed in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. But then he says this in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So here's what he does. The writer of Hebrews wants to say, don't give up. That's the thesis of all of this. And he's going to do that by a couple things, and it's going to be on the screen. I have really simple points for you tonight is the writer of Hebrews says this, first of all. He says, there's a great encouragement for us to continue to pursue God. That God's pursuit of us should make us want to pursue Him. It should make us want to reach out for Him. Paul said it like this in the book of Philippians. He said, I want to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. When Christ takes hold of our hearts, it does something. It revolutionizes our heart, it recreates our heart, and then it makes our heart beat for a different purpose, that I want to reach out and I want to grab hold of Jesus. Here's the only way I know how to explain this. I remember when I first saw Ava, my daughter, who's sitting right over here. I saw her on a little TV screen, and she was a little dot on that TV screen. And it was an ultrasound. It was October. We had just gotten back from a mission trip to Germany. We were a little bit late getting an ultrasound, so she was a little bit more developed. We went in. It was about 10.30 in the morning. And you know you had those times in your life where you remember just about everything. I mean, you can remember details. I remember this morning. I remember the details. Because we were nervous. We wanted our daughter to be healthy. And I was going to see her for the first time. And I remember Rachel laid down on the table, and this lady squirted some weird gel on her stomach and started rubbing something around in her belly. And then all of a sudden, this picture pops up on the screen. And there was this little dot, and then she zoomed in on the little dot, and it became big. And that little dot all of a sudden began to look like a little person. And that little person had a head, and that little person had arms, and it it even had fingers. And then she said, it's a girl. And I said, are you sure? She said, it's a girl. I said, are you sure? She said, do you want me to show you the absence of something? It's a girl, okay? (laughs) I said, okay, I trust you. And she was moving around, and she couldn't even keep up with her. And I'll just tell you guys, in that moment, my daughter reached out from that screen and grabbed hold of my heart. And in that moment, I wanted to grab hold of her. And here's what I mean by that, is I want to do everything that I could do to live in such a way that I would be a dad that would show her what God is like as a father. I wanted to do everything that I could do to make up for every other deadbeat dad of all the girls I had met when I was traveling and speaking that would come up to me and say, my dad's not there for me. My dad left me when I was a teenager. My dad did this. My dad did that. I, I wanted to change. I wanted to be a different man. I walked out of that room that day different because something had taken a hold of my heart, and my heart was reaching out to take hold of it. That's what Paul is saying. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. When God pursues you, the obvious reaction is a tenacious pursuit of him. And he says there's this encouragement for us to pursue him. There's this encouragement. Look at at Hebrews 12, and we'll kind of start digging in here in verse 1. He says this, Therefore, because of what? Because of what he's about to say. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us do something. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so... Cling so closely to us and let us run the race with endurance. So he says, we're going to run a race, but he first gives us kind of like the encouragement for this race. Chapter 11 is the encouragement for the race. He recounts all of Old Testament history. And he was talking to Jewish people, so they would have understood Abraham. They would have understood Moses. They would have understood being delivered from Egypt. They would have remembered all of this stuff. And for us, he recounts all of that. And he says, because of these people, because they lived by faith, Abraham by faith, Moses, by faith. Enoch, by faith. And then he says later that time slips away from us, the writer of Hebrews says. That we don't have time to talk about all the people that by faith had a relationship with God and pursued God by faith. And so what he says is he begins to walk through this. I'll read it to you again. Here's what he says. He says that there were some who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Then he skips over and he says... Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And then he says they went about in the skins of sheep and goats of who the world was not worthy. There were these men, some of them go unnamed, that had faith. And it was this pursuit of God. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Without faith, you can't please God. In essence, without faith, you can't pursue God. It is faith, 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 faith. And what he's saying to the, Hebrew, to the people he's writing to is, don't lose your faith. Don't give up. This pursuit is worth it because somebody has pursued you. And he gives them this, this encouragement. All these people around us. It's this cloud. He says, because of this great cloud of witnesses, I fly a lot to different countries and different places. And if you've flown before, you know that when you get so far up in the air, You are enveloped by a cloud. You look around, you can't really see anything. You get above the clouds, all you see is clouds. There's this moment when you're flying, when you're going through the clouds, and you look around, and you are just covered by clouds. And sometimes the clouds come to visit us, don't they? You ever been driving around in a morning when it's really foggy? The clouds have just sat down on the street. It's a lot of fun. You're enveloped by clouds. Everywhere you look is cloud. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Everywhere you and I look as followers of Jesus. We are enveloped by this great cloud of witnesses. Like when I look around, I see Moses and I see Abraham and I see these guys. I'm enveloped by all of these people. And they're this encouragement for me because it's basically like this. They've done it. They have succeeded by faith. You can do it. You can do it. He lays out for them the encouragement for them, the great cloud of witnesses. And I love the imagery because he says, you're about to run a race. A race that's been marked out for you from the day that you were born. And because God has pursued you, you should pursue him. But you have this great cloud of witnesses that any moment when I want to give up, I look around and I go, okay, there's Abraham. See, we remember what we kind of walked through. God created Adam and Eve. He didn't create because he needed something. God didn't need anything, but he wanted to have a relationship. So he creates Adam and Eve. They fall. They sin. They take things into their own hands and they're separated from God. You may remember the imagery that we used. We broke the mirror. The image of God was shattered. And at that point, the story kind of begins. All of this right here that is in your Bible is God pursuing after the fall. If I was God, let me show you about how much would be in my Bible that much. I'd say I'm done. I'm done with you people. You were made to reflect my glory and my image, and you've fallen. You've not done that. I'm done. But God pursues. He pursues, and then there's a guy named Noah. He tells Noah to build a boat. Noah builds a yacht. Nobody wants to get on his yacht. He's not opening up a cruise line anytime soon, right? So Noah builds a boat. For 120 years, Noah preaches righteousness, and he says, get on the boat. Nobody gets on the boat. God floods the earth. Then Abraham comes along, this 90-year-old man, and God says, you're going to have a lot of children. And he says, how? And he says, well, I won't go into the details, but you're going to have as many children as there are stars in the sky. And through your children, I will bring redemption. I will bring hope to a whole nation. Then he goes to Moses, a little Jewish boy who grows up in the court of Pharaoh, grows up with the favor of the Pharaoh, he murders one of the Egyptians after he sees them oppressing one of his people, and he flees to a desert. And when he's in the desert, he hears from God. Don't you know it's true that a lot of times it's when we're in the desert that we hear from God? So he's there in the desert, and a burning bush talks to Noah, I mean to Moses. That would be weird if Noah were there too, hanging out. So hey, Noah, what you doing? Uh just hanging out in my boat. Um, So the burning bush talks to Moses, and it says, I'm God, and I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Moses says, I can't go there. I don't know what to say. And he says, I'll tell you exactly what to say. And then he says, well, when I go, who do I say sent me? And he says, you can just say I am sent you. The beginning, the end, the first, the last, everything rolled up into one, I am. So he goes. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let your people go. And so God says, okay, I'll send ten plagues, ten plagues that mock the ten major gods of Egypt. Every single one of them mocked an Egyptian god. God was saying, I'm stronger than your gods. You want to play? We'll play. So then, children of Israel leave Egypt. They walk across on dry land. God splits the sea, and they go about in the wilderness because they are disobedient for many, many, many years. There's a tabernacle, and that's where the Spirit of God, the presence of God dwelled. God led them by night, by pillar of fire, by day, by pillar of smoke. They had the presence of God right there. You could not come to worship and fake it. We come to worship and fake it a lot, don't we? We say things like, oh, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. I have a new definition for fine. Fouled up, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. All of us are fine, right? We're all fine. We come to worship and we fake it. You didn't fake it back then. The tabernacle was there. And when the tabernacle was made, the Spirit of God, just presence of God just rested right there. But but God was not okay with just having a mobile tent. He wanted a place. He wanted a house. David said, I want to build you a house. But God said, no, you have blood on your hands. You can't build me a house, but Solomon, your son, will build me a house. And so Solomon built the Lord a temple. And it rivaled any building project you've seen any church ever do. It was the house of the Lord. It was where God dwelt. It's where His people came and worshipped. And His presence was in the Holy of Holies. We know this, many of us, once a year, the priest, the high priest, the priest of all priests, would purify himself and go into the Holy of Holies. He would murder a lamb. He would take its blood and put it on the mercy seat for the sins of the whole nation. And you know what the people did? The nation of Israel? The Bible says that they desecrated the temple. Here's what they basically did, the equivalent of. They, take, they took Playboy magazine pictures, and they hung it in the temple of God. They put pagan gods in God's temple. So God sends prophets, and his prophets say this, clean up my house. And they continue to desecrate the house of God. He sends more prophets It says, clean up my house. They said, no, we won't clean up your house. And so here's what God does. Clean up my house one more time or I'm gone. (laughs) And what we see in the Old Testament is eventually one day the glory of God, the Shekinah manifest glory of God is what it's called. It lifts from the Holy of Holies. It goes to the holy place. It goes to the inner court. It goes to the outer court, the whole temple, and then it leaves. And it's gone. And for 400 years... 400 years. This is the time span between the the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. Nothing was said. There was no worship at the temple. There was no prophets. There was no word of God spoken. Nothing. It was complete silence for the people of God. And then a guy shows up on the scene named John the Baptist, and he's a little weird. He's partly naked, and he's eating grasshoppers. And he's preaching, the kingdom is near. And then one day he sees Jesus. And Jesus comes down, and he looks at him, and he points at him, and he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why do I tell you all this? Because that's what the writer of Hebrews does in chapter 11. He recounts the history of Israel, and he said, all these men by faith, by faith, by faith did it. This is this great cloud of witnesses that are around you. So here's what you should do. If you ever feel weak in your faith, read the Old Testament. Read Abraham, read Moses, because what it should do is it should well up in you this desire to pursue God because you have this great cloud of witnesses before you. But look at Hebrews 12. Because of this, he says, do something. He's got an action for us. There's this encouragement to pursue God, but then there's also these obstacles to pursuing God. Look at what it says. It says, because we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, I used to run tracks. Anybody ever ran here before? Anybody a runner? I know this will surprise you, but I did run. I don't run anymore. I try not to run, actually. I ran track. I ran hurdles, and I realized that I was better at hitting the hurdles. Like, if the point was to hit the hurdles, then I was good, but I hit the hurdles all the time. So I just started running um, long races. They call this cross country. And then I realized that I don't enjoy running after about two minutes. So I stopped running cross country. And then I started sprinting. And I realized I was much better at that. I enjoyed short paces where I just went really fast for a short period of time, and then I could fall over dead. So I did that. But here's what I know, is that if I was on the starting block, and there's all this anxiety, and there's all this tension, there's all this buildup, and basically here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says, therefore, that's a Greek word, and the Greek word is something toigaron. It's kind of a weird word, but here's what it means. On your mark. He's telling them to get on their mark. And they're about to run a race that's been set before them. But before they can run the race, they have to deal with some stuff. They have to deal with some baggage. So he says, because of the encouragement of all these people that have gone before you, get on your mark. But before you can go, and before the gun goes off, lay aside every weight and every sin. He says two things there. Lay aside every weight and every sin. For some of us to run the race to pursue Jesus, there are obstacles There's obstacles for all of us. There's two types of obstacles that he deals with here, the writer of Hebrews. He says, first, the weight. This weight, it could be really anything. It could be sin. It could also be worry. It could be anxiety. It could be something that weighs you down. It could be your past. Paul talks about, in the book of Philippians, he says, one thing I do, I forget my past and I press on towards what lies ahead. The writer of Hebrews says this, lay aside every weight, whatever it is that weighs you down, Because when I used to run cross-country, we used to run with these weights around our ankles. Some of you know about that. You've done that. And we didn't do that during the competition. We only did it when we were practicing so that we could build up our endurance. But when it came competition time, you took all the weights off your ankles and you ran with everything that you had. The writer of Hebrews says you're not going to run this race and this pursuit very well if you are bound up with weight. What is true is that someone in this room, have weight. Now, all of us will have much more weight after tomorrow, but some of us have spiritual weight that nobody can see. Some of you have great shame because of something you've done. You carry baggage around, man. I bet if we could put on some glasses and see what God sees, you'd see people walking in here like they were about to get on a flight to go to China, man. Bags upon bags upon bags. Dragging stuff behind them. And you'd be like, What are you doing? They're like, Oh no, that's just, I just carry that around. I'll kind of like it. You know, I've gotten used to it. The reality is, some of you don't even know the baggage that you have. You've gotten so used to it. But what you don't realize is that it's keeping you from fully pursuing God. And what he says is, Lay aside every weight, anxiety, shame, past sin, past guilt. Lay it aside. And the reality is, this as well, is that Christ has purchased the fact that you can lay it aside. You couldn't lay it aside before. Christ and his cross has purchased that. What's your baggage, man? What is the baggage that keeps you from fully all out running the sprint for the glory of God and the kingdom of God? Is it shame? Is it unforgiveness of yourself? See, some of us in here know we're forgiven by God. We just really struggle forgiving ourselves. And can I just be honest with you tonight? That's sin. That is sin. Not forgiving yourself when God has already forgiven you is as much sin as anything else. And you can repent of that tonight and say, God, I'm going to lay aside that weight so that can run quicker to you. But then He also says this. He says, lay aside weight, but then He specifically says, lay aside sin, lay aside transgresses. Some of us in here are bound up in sin. Some of it's quite obvious, and some some of us don't have obvious sin. We have hidden, secret sin. We have accepted sin, don't we? We're really good in the church at accepting certain sins. If I have blatant sin. If I'm cursing or I'm out partying or I'm out drinking, obviously we would say, no, that's sin. But some of us in this room, the sin that so easily entangles us is not those things. Oh, no. It's much more under the surface than that, isn't it? It's bitterness, it's pride, it's apathy, it's unforgiveness of somebody else, maybe even sitting in this room. So we have a lot of really coddled accepted sin in church. And you look around the landscape of church in North America and you wonder why more Christians aren't all out pursuing Jesus for the glory of God. And it's because we've gotten so used to our sin that we don't even call it sin anymore. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Lay aside the weight and lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And the weight, not the sin, but the weight could be a really good thing. Some of you in here have weight that is really a good thing. It's not a bad thing. There are some things that can entangle us from running this pursuit towards Jesus that is not a bad thing, but it's not the best thing for us. Like a pursuit of a job, a pursuit of a relationship with a guy or a girl, a pursuit of money, a pursuit of status. When Alexander the Great was moving throughout conquering kingdoms, His men, when they would go into a kingdom and they would get a plunder, they would get a bunch of stuff, they would gather it with them. And so as they defeated one kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom, they had all this stuff. They eventually just had a bunch of stuff. And they began to move slower and they began to not fight as well because they're dragging baggage around. Here's what Alexander told them to do. History tells us this. He says, take all the stuff that we have won, our plunder, our gold, our stuff. He said, burn it. Alexander asked his men to burn all the stuff they had acquired at defeating all these kingdoms so that you can actually fight. Some of us, including myself, get so weighed down with the good things in life, the good pursuits in life, and we miss the one pursuit that really matters. I'm so busy pursuing this degree. I'm so busy pursuing this career so I can have this money, so I can have this house and this car, and I can have this status. Some of us get so busy pursuing. Things that matter to the world that don't matter to God. And they're okay pursuits, but in the end, the only pursuit that matters is the pursuit of Jesus. And so here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Anything, sin, weight, great pursuits that aren't of God, whatever it is, if you can't leverage it for the glory of God, lay it aside. Burn it. Get rid of it. It's a radical message, but it's the message of the Bible and not too many people live it. He says, lay aside every weight and sin which so closely entangles us, and then let us run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So he says there's this race that's been set before us. And um, it's not so much a sprint, as I said that I ran before, but it's more like a relay race. Anna Clippa gave me this baton. Now, when I was running in track, I ran the 400meter the relay, which meant we had four guys who ran 100 meters each. I was the third leg. Now I don't remember the batons being this big. They were usually about the white part, and they were metal. This is like this is like, you're going to beat somebody who's in the next lane, you know Like, "Dude, I see somebody coming up on me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a Nancy Kerrigan on them. Um, y'all remember that, huh? Butson remembers that. Us old people remember what happened.. Um, the race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I used to run, and um, I don't run anymore. One time when um, I was in high school and I had met my beautiful wife, Rachel, I, was, I had a crush on this girl named Becca, and I wanted to impress her. And you know, guys, you'll do crazy stuff if you want to impress girls. How many of you guys have done something stupid to impress a girl? Okay. Others of you are liars. Um <laughs> Straight up lying, man. When we give the invitation, go to the prayer room and repent, okay? Um, I remember I wanted to impress Becca. Becca's whole family was, like, super athletic. You know the people that wear, like, under armor all the time? (laughs) You're like, dude, put on regular clothes, okay? We get that you're buff. We get that, okay? Put on some jeans and a regular T-shirt. That was her family. Like, all of them, like, super buff, under armor, Becca played like every sport, and then there's me. <laughs> Obvious, not fitting in. <laughs> Becca says to me one day, she says, um, hey, my family's going down to Atlanta, and we're going to run in the Peachtree Fun Run. Now, I don't know about you, but those two words are diametrically opposed and should never be in the same sentence. Fun <laughs> run, right? I said, what is a fun run? I've never even heard of such gasterly things, you know? Um, I think I just made up that word. Um, <laughs> She said, um, dastardly, that's the word? Okay, thank you. She said, um, well, it's a 6K fun run. And I said, okay, so you're, you're saying 6K. What is?" She said, it's, it's just a couple miles. It's hardly anything. She said, it'll be fun. So we go down to Atlanta. We get this hotel, and, and the, the, her parents paid for me to have my own room. It was awesome. And so the morning of the race, now I've never run in anything official uh, except for my track deal, but I just showed up. I don't know what you wear to a fun run. So they show up in their under armor. I show up in a polo and khaki shorts. <laughs> and it was quite obvious that I had not come to run. <laughs> I'd come to hang out. So they shoot the gun off, and we start running. And can I just tell you, like, people who I know who've ran a marathons, marathons 26 miles. I can't, I can't even think about 20. I don't even drive 26 miles anywhere. If anybody's, has anybody ever ran a marathon here? Okay. Good. You people are sane. Somebody in the back has. You're weird. Um, Just kidding. People that run in marathons, I've had two friends that have run in marathons before, say that about mile 18, your body hits what's called the wall. Everything in you wants to shut down, sit down, and be done. Your body's going, why are you running? Why are you not eating Cheetos and watching Cops? Okay. And people who run marathons say at that point all you have to do you just have to tell your body to run. Well, in my little 6K fun run, I hit the wall at about half K, <laughs> and I was done. Beck and her whole family are hanging out in their under Armour. They've like got a bead of sweat on them, waiting on me at the end of the finish line, like two hours later. Here's what I realize is that it is difficult. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it is going to be difficult for you to run the race that is set before you. It will be difficult. <laughs> Trial will come, hardship will come, but when you look at the great cloud of witnesses that are around you, that's the encouragement. And it's like it's a baton that's being passed to you. It's a baton that has gone from people like Noah to people like Abraham, and it's a baton that's gone from people like Abraham to people like Moses, and it's a baton that has gone from Moses to the prophets, to the prophets, to the disciples, to the disciples, to missionaries countless missionaries around the world like William Carey who went to India for the first time Hudson Taylor who was four months on a boat so he could take the gospel to China and now Chinese believers know him by name it's been given to people like Adam Judson who was a missionary who basically lost his whole family On the mission field. It's been given to great men like Martin Luther, who was a great reformer, who basically, up until that point, nobody read the Bible in their language, and he translated it to a language where the people could read it, and it released power to the church. And then there's us. The writer of Hebrews says that we're in this race, and it has been set before us. Now, I want you to just picture this, okay? Just this imagery for a second, because it's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to picture. You're standing there. And you're in this relay race, but you may not even realize you're in this relay race. And you're standing there, and then all of a sudden you're just kind of hanging out, and you're doing life, and you're doing school, and you're doing your deal. And you feel something hit your hand, and you pick it up, and you look, and it's a baton that has been passed to you. And this baton isn't any baton. It's a baton that's blood-stained with the blood of people who've died to get it to you. And then all these cloud of witnesses that are around you, they're not watching you. The Bible is very clear. They're not watching you sitting in the bleachers, but their lives speak out. And here's what their lives say, run, run, run and lay aside everything that keeps you from running, every pursuit that isn't this pursuit, every sin which entangles you, run the race that is set before you. Take that baton that we've handed off to you and get it to the next generation with everything that you are. Now, here's my question to you. How are you running? Is this baton heavy in your hands? should be. It should get heavier by the minute. As I see people like Billy Graham that I've looked up to for years stand in the pulpit at like 90 years old, and he can't (coughs) preach without shaking, it gets heavier in my hand. This should be extremely heavy in your hand. And the question we have to answer is, what are we going to do with it? The writer of Hebrews wraps up and he says this. He says, there is encouragement, there's obstacles, but there is a goal, there's a purpose, and there's strength in the middle of this race. Look at, look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So here's what he says. You have all of this encouragement around you, these people who've gone before you and who have handed you this baton. But then he says something else. Those guys are not the purpose. Those guys are not the motivation. Here's what he says. I love this. The motivation, the purpose for running this race, this pursuit of God, to get this baton of faith, so to speak, to the next generation, is this guy named Jesus. He's the founder of the race, he's the finisher of the race, and he's your strength in the middle of the race. So he says, don't look to Abraham and don't look to Moses for strength. Look to them for encouragement. You look to Jesus for strength. He founded the race. He will perfect you in the midst of the race. And he's the one you're looking at when you're running. You get this baton handed to you, and you look up, and visually, here's what you see. You see a rabbi with long hair, nail-scarred hands and nail-scarred feet. And here's what he's saying come on, come on, you can do this. And you're going to fall and you're going to stumble and you're going to mess up. It's all going to happen to you. But in the middle of it, you don't look to all these people around you. They're your encouragement. but They are not your strength. He is the author. He started the race. It was his idea. He's the perfecter in the middle of the race. He will finish the race with you and for you. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And the question is, what are you going to do with what has been handed to you. The book of Jude says that we will contend for the faith that was handed to us and delivered to us. Are you contending? I don't know about you guys, but this is heavy on my heart. Because I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, man, I ran for something totally different than what I was supposed to run for. I don't want to get to the end of my life and people at my funeral go, yeah, yeah, he was a good guy. I don't want to get to the end of my life and stand before Jesus and him go, why did you get the baton and go sit down? I'll be honest with you, most people in your generation even just want a comfortable Christianity. Go to church, have a real fuzzy feeling, a warm, cool, fuzzy feeling have some good Bible study, do a good small group, and just be content. And I know we challenge you with this in here a lot, but this is the culmination of all of this that we've been talking about. You cannot be content. You can't be. To be content is to die. Normal is death. What Christ has called us to is an all-out pursuit of Him, where we lay everything else aside, even things that people will look at you and go, you're stupid, why are you laying that aside? And you say, because there's a bigger pursuit, there's a bigger goal. His name is Jesus, and He's calling me to Him. And God has called us as a generation to get this to the next generation. And we may add some blood to it, and some sweat and tears will be added to it. But the writer of Hebrews says, "By faith." you can finish the race. So my question to you tonight is this, is what is it that you have to throw off or lay aside so that you can run the race better? In a minute, the band's going to come and lead us in some worship, and we're just going to have a time of worship, and the prayer room's going to be open. But my question to you tonight is that you know you have to run a race. I know I have to run a race, but the obstacle is this, sin and weight, which so easily entangles me. So what is the shame that settles in on you when you begin to run? What is a sin that has wrapped you so tight that maybe some people don't even know about because it's a hidden, accepted sin? Writer of Hebrews says, cast it aside. Jesus would say it like this to the disciples. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That was crazy, crazy talk back then because he was talking to a Greek culture that to compete in the Olympics would mean you had to have a perfect body. So when he says, if you sin," Cut your hand off and throw it away. Be very, 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 very extreme with the way in which you deal with sin. Because it will keep you from running the race and getting this baton to the next generation, which you have been called to do. Let's pray. God, tonight our desire is um, just to truly pursue you with everything that we are. And God, I thank you that many, many years ago, whoever the writer of Hebrews was, penned these words in chapter 12, two short verses that are packed with so much stuff. That God, we would, because of the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, Lay aside every weight and every sin, which so easily entangles us, so easily ensnares us and keeps us back. And pursue you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you, God, endured the cross. Father, you've set the example for us in endurance. You've endured the cross. We will never have to endure the cross. You've endured it for us, God. But Lord, I pray that we, as your people, God, as college students who have been given a task, to get the baton of faith, so to speak, to the next generation, would lay aside everything that we have to lay aside for this task and this task alone, and that is to get your glory to the nations. So, Father, we want to worship you, and Lord, we pray that through our worship tonight, we will worship you in an attitude of repentance if we need to repent, in an attitude of gratefulness, attitude of thanksgiving tonight as we think about what you've blessed us with. And God, I pray that tonight if we need to lay anything aside, Lord, spiritually, that we would... We would do that, God. Father, we love you so much. We thank you that your pursuit of us is stronger and bigger than our rejection of you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. All God's people said. We're going to worship a little bit tonight together. And um, the prayer room is open. As Leslie said, you can go in there and be prayed for or um, just pray by yourself. And you can make this place up here an altar. You can make your chair an altar as you worship. Whatever you need to do to respond to God tonight, we invite you to do that. Um, Let's stand together and we'll worship.